Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Oakley, Jess, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. It's uh, nice to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for coming on, Oakley. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if you're listening to this conversation, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jess, can I start off with you? I just really want to touch briefly on the choice to use pseudonyms today. How does that speak to, I guess, the nature of the issue here? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really does speak to it, doesn't it? Um, so, you know, living here in Connecticut, we feel pretty safe where we are and um, don't feel threatened by by much of anything. However, um, that could change. And we all see that. We know that we're watching the, the, uh, the political nature of everything around the country and how different states are changing their um, guidelines and rules and laws. And it's pretty scary, to be honest. So we know that we're safe at the moment, but um, we've decided that it's best to not come out with our real names and and location of where we live, specifically because Oakley is also a minor and my child and my responsibility and my husband's responsibility to keep him safe. So I so appreciate you guys coming on pseudonyms or no pseudonyms. Oakley. Yeah. Can we talk about where you're at now and if you can kind of help me with how far you've come specifically over the last uh, two years or so, I believe. I struggled like really badly with mental health for a couple of years and we were like for a long time trying to figure out like the root of like the problem. Although there isn't always a root for like mental health problems. We were just wondering like if there was in my scenario and um, I thinking back now, I remember many scenarios where I experienced like gender dysphoria and stuff like that. But during the time, I had no idea what that was. And it left me feeling really like confused and anxious. And um, once I started realizing, once I started learning more about gender dysphoria and transgender, non-binary, gender fluid, et cetera, is when I started like putting the pieces together, I guess. Um, And so I, during quarantine, like the, quote unquote main quarantine of 2020 is when I was like oh I think I might be trans but I didn't want to be but I was like oh like I think I might be um but I didn't want to be because of all like this stigmatism and all the negativity and everything in the world and even in our state in our town like no one's ever going to be happy with no one's ever going to be like a hundred percent happy with like who someone is. Uh, um, I was really afraid of that. And I was really afraid of what people would think about me. And so I kind of like suppressed those thoughts, those feelings. And it's like, Oh, I'll get over this. And so to try to do that, I started dressing a lot more feminine. Um, Cause I was never a girly girl to begin with. I just never was. And um Although I did, I, I did dance and I still continue to do dance for like 10 years. Um, 
I hated like the makeup, like wearing makeup and stuff. And I never like, I never liked to go get my nails done or anything like that. But when I started having thoughts of being trans, I was like, no. So I, then I started pushing myself to try to be, try, try to present more feminine so that, I don't know, maybe I can, I could like trick myself into like enjoying it more. And, um, that did not work. And, um, it actually worsened my mental health even more. And um, I didn't know how to like explain it to my family. Um, So I kind of wanted to like ease them into it instead of like dropping a bomb being like, hey, I'm trans by the way. Cause like that would come out of nowhere for them. And the very first thing I did was I came out as bisexual and um, that alone was like, whoa, <laughs> that was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> My child likes boats. <laughs> um, so that, that was like big for my family to hear. And then I slowly, like, as I was like discovering myself, I like had a good communication with my mom. And so that's how they started figuring out. And I started, like, I told her one time that like, I asked my friends to use like she, they pronouns. And then I cut my hair and then I stopped wearing like crop top leggings and stuff. I started like wearing more like jeans and like a t-shirt, like a baggy t-shirt or something and just dressing more how I wanted to. And um, that's when my family was like, oh, there's something, there's something here, but we don't know what it was. Jess, could you just help me out with Oakley saying he's bisexual at this point? What was your reaction? We had learned a lot from Oakley and his generation about sexuality, basically, right? And how um, there was a lot of a lot more people in the LGBTQ community than we would have than we knew. And that was we were definitely growing up or or they were growing up in a world right now that it was more acceptable than when we were growing up. So they were all talking about it a little bit more and it was okay if you felt that you might be interested in the same sex or maybe both sexes. So, but we um, didn't, you know, we, we had at the time two boys and a girl. So we were, and I, I like to say this to everybody because we were your typical um, Irish and Italian Republican Catholics. Let's just put it that way. So, um, there, you know, we, we would go to church every single week. We would have, you know, family was incredibly important to us and still is. Um, and we were very traditional, like probably there was, we were probably more of the minority of how traditional family we were. Um, so when Oakley came out as bisexual to me, I was just like, Oh, Oh, okay. I'm trying to sort of you can't calmly react and and ask what what so what did that mean you like boy, both boys and girls and I wanted to learn more about it and kind of educate myself and I've always wanted my children to be able to talk to me about anything it's been one of the things I've always said as a mother I want them to be able to come to me about anything so it was really important that um, I responded in a way to him that he would be able to talk to me so that's how I responded and that was the beginning. Um, Oakley took us on a journey and the journey went from, hey, I'm bisexual to months and months and months later of, listen, I'm really trans. Like I, I'm, I'm in the wrong body. I'm, I'm not, I'm, or I, I feel that I should 
that I am a, a boy. So he really took us very slowly through that. And I, I appreciate that from him. I, I, you know, I really do because um, it was his way of, of bringing us baby steps through, um, through his, his journey. Jess, can you just kind of take me into this convo that we just talked about and how that leads to a conversation about gender identity? Yeah. So it's funny because they're totally two different things, right? I mean, who you are interested in, whether you're um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, is it's who you're interested in. And then gender is totally different, which took me a while to figure out as well. So um, at the time, um, Oakley was going through a lot of uh, mental health issues that we began to sort of realize were not based off of what we originally thought. Um, Oakley had initially... Uh, started off with an eating disorder. And that was more about changing Oakley's body himself and how he looked as opposed to just as opposed to starving himself because he wanted to be really skinny. It was starving himself because he couldn't stand how puberty was making him look because he couldn't stand the fact that he was developing into a female. And that we did not know that at the time, but as time went on and we began to see Oakley cutting his hair, wanting to go by different pronouns, changing what he was wearing, um, we realized that there was more here than, than just, hey, I, I don't like my body and hey, I'm bisexual. There was a gender confusion. And, and he did say that to me over the time that he was like a little confused about his gender and at one point came out to non-binary as us, to us, which was a whole other learning curve for us. Oakley, you alluded to this earlier in the interview. You say you knew you were trans, you wanted to be a boy, but you feared the discrimination. And then there's something else you said in this video I'm talking about from Healthcare uh, Advocates International. You say you didn't want to continue on being closeted. Can you help me with that conversation that you're having, this this internal dialogue? Yeah. Um, it was... It was just all so complicated because the reality is with the world that we live in, you can come out and be yourself and be happy with yourself, but you're upset a lot of other people, or you can live your life in misery with yourself and be accepted by everyone else. Because if I was just the, if I just stayed as the straight, like female that I, like how I was born, it would have been a lot easier. I would. I wouldn't have lost friends and family would have been different. My, the family dynamic with extended family would have been different, but um, it's, it gets to the point where it is so unbearable because the reality of life is that you're the only person that you're going to be living with for the rest of your life. Like, although families forever, of course, and everything, um, whether or not they choose to accept is their choice. But with yourself, you can't, there's no, you can't like, oh, I'm going to take a break from myself. I'm going to go out for the weekend. No, like you're stuck with yourself. And so it takes a long time, but to learn that your happiness in your life is the most important because another thing that people say is like, oh, the, um, the world doesn't revolve around you. And in some ways, yes, but also in your life, yes, it does because it's your life. So for me, the, the world revolves around me. For mom, the world revolves around mom because it's in our separate lives. And so 
I, I also have, I have a best friend and he's gay and he, he's like your very stereotypical feminine boy. And, um, he would get picked on a lot, but he, his confidence, and he was like, I don't care. Like, it just doesn't matter what other people think. I'm going to go live my life. And if they don't like it, then like, who cares? They're like little like rats on the street. Um, and that also helped that helped with me because I started being, I started realizing like, like if I, if I, if these people really want to just leave because of how I'm identifying, then like, there's no, I shouldn't have had them in my life in the first place, because if they're going to choose politics over me or religion or religion over me or et cetera, like that's, that just shows a lot about them and has nothing to do with me really. Oakley, you're dealing with this sort of, I think you mentioned it as body dysphoria and really having a, a crisis of gender identity at this point. And you're also having to have this kind of conversation with your mother, other family members. What was that process like to just be who you are with your family and, and convey that to them? Um, although with the views that we had that were that we were grew up with, um, I wasn't ever too, too worried about coming out to my mom because she was always open to like educate herself on like pretty much anything. Although she did have like views. She, she, it's not like she was like this way or no way, you know, she was always open to things with my other family, like extended family. It was, it was scary because there's just no way of understanding someone who's trans if you're not trans yourself. So like you can accept it. You can, um, you can say like you understand and stuff, but you're never going to truly understand as, as I will not understand what it's like to be cis. No one will understand unless you're trans, what it is like to be trans. So saying things like how the way I look made me want to die. I didn't think my family, but I think my family, I thought my family would react like that's, that's, that's just not true. Like that, that's just not real. Um, they didn't react that way, but a lot of a lot of people's minds go to worst case scenario and so that's what my mind was doing um yeah but can i interrupt with that because the interesting thing on that is there was always one thing after another that oakley wasn't happy with it started off with the anorexia and not eating and his losing a tremendous amount of weight at a a young age Uh, but then after that when he began to weight restore he had this incredible dislike of his own face and I remember it's actually called facial dysmorphia dysmorphia. um and I was like oh my gosh you know I mean this is this just goes on and on about how much he can't stand himself how he looked to the point that when COVID hit Oakley was very happy to wear a mask outside because he was able to hide his face that he and the the way that he presented presented very much as a female and he didn't like that so um, I tried to say, I don't understand, you know, you're, be- you're beautiful. How do you not like yourself? How, you know, I don't like my eyes. I don't like my nose. I don't like my ears. I don't like my, my lips. And I was just like, oh, it all makes sense to me now. But during the time I didn't understand it at all. Um, and I don't think that Oakley understood it to the extent that, Hey, I- I'm just, I'm just not happy with how I look because I, I'm a boy and this is not right. Jess, much of what I'm talking about comes up in a video of you both sharing your experiences 
with Healthcare Advocates International. That's a Stanford-based nonprofit healthcare organization. That video actually is on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And I'm thinking about a part in that in that uh, video, and it seems like for you, Jess, this was a tipping point. Your son's in the hospital battling through this. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of take me through your reaction yeah. to that and kind of realizing that, man, I need to get my son some help here? Yeah, so this was the second time that he was in the hospital. Um, um, and it was only six months ago, about six months ago from, from here. And um, uh, at this point, we knew that he uh, was engaging in self-harm again. He was feeling um, probably not completely like suicidal, but definitely as, as, as Oakley said himself, I don't want to live like this. Right. So that's, he was so fed up of living the way that he was living. And so we had um, a, a FaceTime call with Tony from healthcare and advocate international lined up for this Thursday. I remember it was a Thursday at 6 PM. And it was also the day that the therapist Oakley's therapist said to us, yeah, I think you need to bring him. So we brought him into the hospital. And of course, unfortunately, um, when you go into uh, the, the, the emergency room to go into the psych ward, there's a long wait. And that's scary Like to think about our, our, our youngsters and how many of them are dealing with um, mental health issues. But that's for another conversation. But um, so we were waiting. Oakley was on a gurney in the hallway in the emergency room, waiting to get into a bed because um, they had um, said, yeah, he needs to go into a, to, to, the, to the psychiatric ward. And I said to the nurse, we have a call that um, is, is scheduled and I need Oakley to be on that call. And she was like, eh. and it's not, you know, it's not really, I said, and as the first time I was like, I'm not accepting no for an answer. This man that my son is going to talk to is the reason why we're here and is possibly going to, to help save his life. I mean, that was it. So Oakley got on the call with Tony and um, I think for, for Oakley to hear somebody understand what he was going through and to be able to say, Hey, Oakley, we can do X, Y, and Z and help you. I mean, the most, if you don't mind me saying one of the most difficult things for a trans um, a trans child is having their period. When you have your period, it is such a reminder of the fact that you were born a female. And it was during the time that when he would get his period, it was so difficult on him. So Tony was able to say, oh, we can take care of that for you. Like we can help you. Like there's things, and it was so matter of a fact to him that Oakley was like, oh, oh, hold on a second. I didn't see a future yesterday. Now I see a future. And it, it just changed everything, changed everything to the point that we had like a three or four day wait to get into the psych ward. So we were going to be in this emergency room area for that length of time. We were able to take Oakley home probably, I think it was the next day when I said to Oakley, okay, I know what you need now. You need to start the transition. You need to, to, to go to people that can help you. And once we decided on that and we were like, okay, let's go home. Um, I think we went home on a Saturday that Monday, I made the phone call and um, to a clinic and um, we started the process. Oakley, is this second time you're in the hospital? Is this where you start to see that you're going to get the treatment that you need? 
Yeah, that's kind of, the first time I was in the hospital, I was actually sent to the psych ward and was with kids who were also experiencing, like not all of them, of course, but there were kids that were also experiencing like gender dysphoria and stuff. But I think the difference was talking to an adult who understood it and because kid because a lot of people just don't listen to teens they or kids they don't listen to if you're a minor they won't listen to you but hearing that an adult understood what I was talking about what I was going through and stuff really changed the perspective because no one else was listening to me but he was so that's kind of when I was like oh I don't want to be in this hospital I don't want to because at that at this point I was four, four years in and out of treatment and I was like I don't want to do this for my for the rest of my life I don't want this to be the way it is and if I can actually live a life like Tony was living then that sh- it doesn't solve all my problems but it definitely helps how important are resources like HCAI like Tony like the group of friends you mentioned the tight group of friends that you have how important are they in the transition as much as everyone says as much as people think i can do this on my own i can do this on my own there is nothing wrong with reaching out to others there is absolutely nothing wrong with it and especially at as a minor it is there's it's so important to reach to reach out because we don't we haven't necessarily had to live we've never like we haven't lived long enough to fully develop every skill possible so reaching out to adults and surrounding yourself with people your age who will uplift you and who just just want to be friends with you for who you are not because of how you identify who you identify like just because they just simply like being friends with you and um reaching out to people who although may seem like strangers like um Suicide Hotline, Trevor Project, um, Healthcare Advocate International, um, and other places like that. They, although it may seem like like oh, I don't want to talk to strangers about like my feelings and stuff. It, it it's not it's not that's not the case. It's although you don't know the people, you can get to know them, and they you already have a connection with them because they understand what you're going through. Not like talking to some like talking to. Just, someone who just doesn't understand it, but they'll listen. It's different when someone will listen and they understand it. Jess, what about a a resource like Tony or Healthcare Advocates International? What about that in terms of helping your change and your understanding on this topic? Oh my God. I mean, it was to me life-changing. I didn't know where to turn, what to, I didn't understand it at all. I I was scared as a parent. I think still am. And I think I always will be. Um, and I, a friend of a friend was how I got to know about Tony at Healthcare Advocates International. And as the minute I reached out to him, he contacted me the next day because I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to be waiting a while for him. But he contacted me the next day and he said, let's get on a FaceTime call. And I think he mentions this in, in the, the, the video that um, when he spoke with me, the tears were streaming down my face and they were tears of fear of like, I, I don't know what to do. How do I, what do I do for my child? And what does this mean? And how do we deal with it as a parent? And listen, they, they, they always say they don't give you a manual, right? When you have a child, um, you, we all come as, along as parents having to, to deal with things that we just aren't equipped to deal with. But this one was like, 
well, I, I didn't read about this in a book anywhere, right? I mean, this was completely something I didn't know what to do and my husband didn't know what to do. So for Tony, he could understand it from my son's perspective, but he also, because he had dealt with parents like myself for so many years, he could truly understand how I was feeling, the fear that I was feeling. And he was able to walk me through, okay, this is what your son needs. And this is what we can do for him. And, and he also, and, and Oakley hates when I say this, I needed someone to say to me, yes, yes, your son is trans. Oh yeah. And Oakley, his whole point, and I understand this because he said it so many times, is if if somebody would have just listened to me from the beginning, right? And this is what I hear so much out of Oakley's mouth now is why aren't we listening to what these teens, what these kids are saying? I know how I feel and nobody is listening to me. But I needed an adult to say to me, like like, a, you know, someone to say to me, yes, yes, like to affirm it for me. Yes, he's definitely, there's no doubt in, in our mind that that what he's feeling is body dysphoria and is, um, he's truly trans. And um, these are the things that we can do to help. So I didn't know anything about anything. I, I really didn't. I was so uneducated um, and just didn't understand anything. And so through Tony, I learned a lot. And then through honestly, watching YouTube's, YouTube videos, TikToks, all sorts of things of people that I watched go through the journey and watched who feel the exact same way. And all these trans kids, kids, trans youth, even the adults were saying the exact same stuff as Oakley was saying to me, exact same stuff. Um, so all of those resources, you can't do it on your own. You, you really can't. It's so hard. So you need these resources. And I'm just so grateful to Tony for, for that. Oakley, could you just talk to me about what's in the importance of an ally and what you need from people? Yeah, um, this is something I'm very passionate <laughs> on because I think people are taking it like, like just teen kids and teens are just idiots and they just absorb whatever's around them. We had someone who like said to us or said to her that, um, because I've, I, for years, I've followed along the story of Jazz Jennings, who's a transgender female, and she has a TV show. And people were like, you're just, if people said to her that, to my mom, that um, it was just putting things into my head. And that's just simply not true. Because no one, no one, the show, no one is telling you, oh, you're trans, you're trans, you're gay, you're bisexual. No one's saying that. And the importance of, normalizing everything is huge especially with kids because they're now saying the don't say gay bill in florida for kids younger and that that doesn't make any sense because say there is if you're not if you're saying don't say gay don't say gay and there's a child who maybe has two moms two dads or has a parent who identifies as non-binary or anything really and the kids don't grow up like learning that this is something that happens there they will get picked on they will get bullied and then that's just, that's how things just get so much worse. And then again, when there are parents who will not listen to their kids and will be like, they're, um, this is just a phase. This is just what they're like. They're just thinking this because of social media and stuff. And then their kids start struggling immensely with mental health. And sometimes they lose their battle and parents are like, what happened? It's like, well, 
they were telling you what happened. And I was never the best with communication ever with my family. I, when I had something to communicate with them, I would write letters and slip it under the door mm-hmm. because I, I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't with community. I, I was struggling so bad with communication. Um, but I found my ways to communicate. And so if your kid is trying to communicate, like we had this system where if I was struggling one night, I would just stay downstairs in the family room. And it became like a non, like a not talking thing because I I couldn't say to my mom, Hey, I'm struggling tonight. I just couldn't do it. So my mom knew that if I was downstairs, that means I was struggling and I just wanted to be around her. Um, so just coming up with things like listening to your kids, no matter how they're talking, they're trying to communicate with you, no matter what, listening to them and seeing what they're feeling and like not telling them this is a phase or their feelings are unvalid or just, just simply listening to them, whether you agree or not, it doesn't matter because if this is how your kid is feeling, that's not going to change. Jess, in the video, Patty McKnight, who is the executive director of Healthcare Advocates International says, education is the best medicine. What do you have to say to other parents? Hey, that's my platform right there. Um, And I can say it because I lived it. I was uneducated, so uneducated about this. Um, But I truly, truly believe we need to educate. We need to get this out there. This is happening. This is happening. This is a real thing. These are not pretend people, right? I mean, so many people say trans people don't exist. Yeah, yeah, they do. They absolutely (laughs) exist. Um, and, um, And they're not scary. He's not that scary. So like people are so afraid of the unknown and um, they prefer to, to, to follow people like the Matt Walsh's of the world um, and, and just go onto his platform of, of uh, total anti-trans transphobia and everything, as opposed to, hey, let's do a little bit of research. Let's go back years and years and years and see, you know, how many years ago this didn't just pop up out of nowhere. So I think it, it's the education is so important. Uh, we have some really good laws here in Connecticut um, that our schools are supposed to follow, but I don't think our schools really follow them or learn about them unless they have to. And um, I know we've been lucky, but I know plenty of families that haven't been as lucky as we are and certainly don't live in as an accepting space as we live in. Um, and I think just if we could just educate people and then also parents um because as a parent it's not it's not it's not easy you go it's not you know most parents aren't like oh yeah yippee my child is trans it just doesn't happen like that you you go through a lot a lot of things um but the most important thing is our responsibility is protecting our child and making sure we we can do what we can to to make them want to live in this world that we've provided so i do i agree 100% with patty we need to educate we need to talk about it more as opposed to saying, no, 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 we're not going to talk about this in schools. Stop indoctrinating our children. Stop talking about it. Because if you talk about it, you're going to make them trans. <laughs> That's just not the case. And if it is, then there's some other stuff going on that, that needs to be discussed in the family. I understand there's a, there's, a, there's a pride event that's happening in your town soon. Yeah, so there is a pride event that's happening in our town soon. Um, and um, I like to say that I went from a... <laughs> completely non-educated mother who knew nothing about any of this to someone who is now heading up this uh, pride event and parade and fully into it. I I am like doing everything. Uh, And and I have tremendous amount of help, of help from Healthcare Advocates International. I'm so grateful to them for the help that they're giving to me. But yes, because let's, let's, let's bring this out more in these towns and these shoreline towns and the towns 
in Connecticut, wherever we can, let's let's bring this out. Let's normalize this. Let's talk about it. Let's educate. Um, and, and also, I, I want these kids, I want my child and other kids just like Oakley to feel safe and loved and accepted. The reality of it is, is just to ask the question, how many deaths is it going to take for people to realize this isn't a joke? And this isn't something that just goes away. This is real. It's not going away. And it needs, it, it, something needs to happen. It needs to be fixed. Oakley, a brave 15-year-old who got the help you needed and mom supported you. Thank you so much for coming on Where We Live, Oakley and Jess. Thank you so much for bringing light to this really important topic. We, we appreciate it more than you know. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Frankie Graziano. This is Where We Live. Coming up, we hear from the Trevor Project about their research into LGBTQ youth mental health. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.